talked towards him instead of running away. When somebody talked to him and gave him the dignity of you exist and I am here and I want to be in your presence. Even while he is possessed, there is a human side of him desperate to be set free from this nightmare. And if there was the human side inside of his brain coming out, he was probably thinking, why doesn't this guy run from me? He's talking to me. Maybe I'm not alone. Maybe there is hope. And that is the good news for those of us who are desperately crying out. (laughs) Is that God offers hope and salvation to everyone. You see this in Psalm 146 when God is described as the one who cares about the oppressed and the hungry and the prisoner and the blind and the sojourner, meaning the immigrant and the widow and the fatherless, meaning anyone who is alone. Why? Verse 8 of Psalm 146 says, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. I don't know what you come here with today, what baggage, what pain, what has been done to you, what you've been entrapped in, how you feel bowed down. But when you look at this man, you see somebody who is as far from God as possible. He is a demon-possessed pagan Gentile living across the sea from the people of God living like an animal, unclean because he's living amongst dead bodies and pigs, which made you unclean in the Jewish world, separated from his own community, starving and suffering. You cannot get any lower or farther. But Jesus finds him. And wherever you are today, he wants to find you. Jesus gives in to the pleas of the demon possessed, the, the demons, and drives the pigs, drives the demons into pigs. And according to Mark, 2,000 pigs rush down the cliff and into the sea and drown. And in the process, the man is set free. The demons are gone. And he is given new life. I want you to see in this a little bit of an image right there. Battling evil is costly. And in this case, and in every case, it seems, death is involved. In battling Satan and sin and ultimate evil, Jesus goes to the cross. He is the one who is bound in our place. He is driven down the cliff metaphorically. He's drowned under our sin and evil and Satan and death so that we might be set free, so that we might be raised to new and eternal life like this man was. The contrast in the story of the man is marked. When you get to the end of the story compared to the beginning, at the beginning he's naked, at the end he's clothed. This is a good start. At the beginning, he is demon-possessed, out of his mind, crazy. At the end, he is in his right mind is the description. 
He's sitting there calm and listening to Jesus. At the beginning, he is all alone, living among the tombs. And at the end, he's sent back to his home to be with community. It is a story of marked contrast. He was metaphorically dead. Exile, which is what the life he lived, was a form of execution and death in the ancient world. He was spiritually dead, bound by Satan. He was living amongst the tombs, and his life was so dehumanized he might as well be dead. But he is made alive. It's a story of complete and total resurrection. Jesus does not just set him free spiritually. Jesus restores him wholly. And you have to see that I think many of us come from the mindset of what God has come to do is to save us spiritually and eternally. Yes, that is true. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants you to be right with him. But he wants to restore and save you wholly and completely in every possible way. And we see this in the man. It's not just the demons are driven. And now he has a relationship with Jesus. He goes from naked to clothed. He is physically made whole, mentally made whole, socially made whole. At the end of the story, the man begs, can I come and be with you, Jesus? And we understand this, right? He's been all alone. Jesus heals him. He's like, hey, can I just follow along? And Jesus says something that doesn't seem to make sense at first. No, you can't. You can't come with me. Everyone else, he says, come follow me. Instead, he says to this man, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. But think about how powerful that is. One of the first things we see is in that declare how much God has done for you is that he has given a new calling and vocation and identity. His entire community for a decade or more had seen him as the crazy demon-possessed maniac who lived out amongst the tombs. And now he has a calling to return to his pagan Gentile village and be the very presence of God for them. These people, his community, are far from God, and he now goes as the very presence of God. The one who is exiled and dead returns alive to give the only source of hope that these people, his family and friends, could possibly have, Jesus. He is the only way they are going to experience shalom and healing and restoration. That's his new calling. Jesus gives him an identity. And he extends incredible mercy to the guy when he says, simply, return to your home. I remember the first couple of times that I read this, I glossed over this, but a couple of years ago when I was reading, when I got to that phrase, return to your home, I was blown away by what was being said here. Jesus is telling the man, I want you to simply go home. How long has it been since you've been in a bed? Sat down at dinner with your family? How long since somebody has hugged you? Just go home. Go and rest. Sleep. Eat. Laugh. Enjoy humanity again. God is not just concerned with our spiritual well-being. He's concerned with our relational our social, our physical well-being. He wants us to know life to the full. 
This man has returned home, and it is a grace and mercy of Jesus. Go home. Just go be with your family. That's okay. You don't have to follow me in the same way. The man, according to verse 36, is healed. Other translations put it with what the word actually is, which is a Greek word sozo, meaning saved or salvation. He's healed, he's saved, he's restored. The implication of what happens to the man is that he's not just set free from demons. He is mentally and emotionally and physically and socially completely and totally restored. It is so beautiful. And it's what God wants to do with every one of us. The gospel is holistic. In the kingdom of God, what God was doing through Jesus was aiming at the complete restoration of all things. So, Think about the complete restoration of all things. In order to do that, you have to think about heaven, about the new creation, about what it's going to be like 10 trillion years from now, right? What will you look like? What will your family look like? What will your city look like? What will this earth and creation look like in eternity? And live that way now. One of the challenges we faced, again, is we are reductionists. We want to turn things into just one primary issue. So if we have a problem, we think, okay, is it, if somebody has a problem, is it physical and psychological? Or is it social and political? Or is it spiritual and moral? It depends on what you believe. It depends on what your worldview is and where you think everything is going. But think about it this way. Let's take a particular issue like this man almost seems to have, which is depression. How you deal with depression reveals your worldview. When you see somebody who is not right in their mind, they're not well, is it primarily psychological and experiential? What they need is therapy. They need to talk about their past. They need to kind of overcome mentally and socially what has happened to them in the past. Or is it primarily physical and chemical? What this person needs is medicine. And another person in another field might say they need to eat and sleep and exercise well. It's physical and chemical. And many Christians would say, no, no, it's moral and spiritual. You're depressed, you're mentally not doing well, what, what sin have you not confessed? Maybe you need prayer. You need healing from God. When dealing with somebody who's struggling in mental illness, we tend to reduce to one thing. If you have a hammer, right, everything looks like a nail. So what's your worldview? What is the issue? Some Christians feel guilty taking medicine. It's a lack of faith. If you really believe God. Others who don't believe in God discount the spiritual and demonic altogether. That could never be the answer. Yeah, you'd need medicine and therapy. That's it. 
As Christians, we say we believe in a holistic gospel, but often our actions, which we may not ever speak, betray us. What we actually think is real is what we'll fall on when things break apart in our own lives. You could play this out not just with depression, but with other things like solving poverty, right? What's the solution to poverty? Is it better schools or business investment? Is it stopping crime or health care? Is it marriages need to be restored in poverty-stricken areas, or is it the gospel needs to be preached in poverty-stricken areas? Do you tend to think Republicans have the best solutions and Democrats are all wrong? Or the other way around? We tend to reduce problems to a single plane based on our worldview and what we think the end is about. Think about even how we think about mission. Depending on the church you go into, mission means preach, pray, and plant churches. Preach the gospel, pray for people to meet Jesus, and plant churches so that gets accomplished. Other churches would say, no, it's mercy and help, food, clothes, education for the poor and the downtrodden. And it really does depend on your view of the end of all things. If you don't believe that there's a God or heaven and physical life is all there is, then you really do just need to care for people's physical well-being. If, on the other hand, your worldview says that at the end of all times, God's going to destroy everything, and all we need to do as Christians is escape the destruction, then the only thing that will matter to you is the spiritual. And whether we care for people physically, it's irrelevant. I mean, really, they just need to know Jesus. But if your view of the end is that God is going to resurrect and renew creation, that his intention is shalom for everything and everyone, then it tells us everything matters. People's spiritual well-being and physical well-being and economic well-being and social well-being. And we want to preach and proclaim and heal and care for in every possible way because that's what Jesus does. Jesus wants to bring total and complete restoration in our lives and through us to the world around us, not one-dimensional. You know, I love how the townspeople have been dealing with this problem for some time. This guy, this crazy guy, I mean, the poor pig herders are out there and the crazy guy comes running out at them. They try to avoid him. They try to chain him up. They just want him to be gone. They're hoping he'll be dead. When he's finally well again, when he's finally healed, he's sitting there dressed in his right mind. And what do the townspeople say? They ask Jesus in verse 36, they ask him to depart from them for they are seized with great fear. He's just made everything right for this guy. Get out of here, Jesus. But you know, I think that might be the right answer on one perspective. Because this much you see in this story and in much of the New Testament, Jesus is not safe. He is not benign. Was Jesus just a religious leader? You know, maybe good for some of you, but not for me. Or if you are a Christian, is Jesus mostly concerned with you becoming a better person? 
Is he content with you simply being a nice, productive adult citizen? Is that what Jesus wants? Just to make you better people? Jesus was and is dangerous. Reactions to Jesus were violent. His townspeople, his own townspeople, tried to throw him off a cliff. The religious leaders called him blasphemous. His own brothers said he's out of his mind. A group of men tear open a roof to drop their friend into him. A prostitute flails upon him, sobbing. A Roman centurion, a Roman officer, searches to find him. People wanted to destroy him, or they were desperate to find him. There was nothing calm about any person who ever met Jesus. Jesus is not simply safe. And if you let him in, he is likely to go very, very deep with you. It could be painful, but it will be worthwhile. C.S. Lewis talked about it in Mere Christianity when he talked about what happens when you invite God into your life. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Jesus is not safe because he is not content to leave you as a nice citizen. He wants total and complete restoration of who you are. You can't just get a little Jesus to help you out. If you get him at all, you get all of him, and he takes all of you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are powerful if these things are true. And we live in a world that we don't fully understand and we try to simplify and define. Give us the faith to give our lives to you and to see how you want to restore us wholly and completely and use us to do the same in this world that you've created. Amen.